Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our series AD 30, which is basically another way of saying we're doing a series on the life of Christ. And today I want to talk about a recipe for unbelief. And when you hear that, you would assume we're talking about perhaps people who've never come to faith or have not much interest in God or are maybe atheists. And I'm not talking about that at all. I'm actually talking about people who are connected to faith and how we often become people of unbelief in certain ways. When Pierre Paul Thomas was growing up in Montreal in the 1940s, couldn't play hockey with his brothers, broke his heart. Thomas was born blind long before a cure was available for his malady. So for most of his life, he could only imagine the world that people often described to him. For years, he walked with a white cane to avoid obstacles in front of him. But at the age of 66, Thomas fell down the stairs in an apartment and fractured the bones of his face. He was taken to the hospital. He had really severe swelling around his eyes. A team of doctors went to work to repair the bones. Months later, he went to be examined by a plastic surgeon for a consultation about repairing his face, his scalp. The surgeon casually asked Thomas, okay, while we're at it, do you want us to fix your eyes too? Thomas didn't understand, nor did he know how to respond. Not long after that, he had surgery and he could truly see for the first time. And suddenly his world consisted of bright colors he had never fathomed before. He spoke of being awestruck by flowers and trees blooming, as beautiful as this story of a 66-year-old man who was able to see for the first time is. There's an incredibly sad reality connected to it. He could have had the same surgery at a younger age and been able to see for much of his lifetime. He had assumed such a possibility was impossible. He had resigned himself to a life of blindness when in reality he could have experienced the gift of sight decades earlier. Now nobody who hears this story is relieved that Pierre Paul got his sight, are you? It's no doubt in his mind it's almost a medical miracle. I mean, it's not a technical miracle. The advances of science that God has allowed us to discover, we heal people that way. It's incredible. But you're not relieved about that. That's not the point of the story. Instead, we're all saddened because we know that Pierre Paul lived his life next to a truth, next to a cure, next to a solution that had eluded him for decades He missed out on a potentially exponentially better life, a life of sight, a life with the whole world available to him. And it was right there all along. There were always doctors for the last 20 or 30 years who knew how to do that surgery and were doing it every day. And he missed out on that. That's what we're thinking. Sometimes in this life, there are probably people because of where they're born or knowledge, culture they come from, the country they come from, they may miss what they perceive as the physical miracle. And that's tragic. But what if we 
as spiritual beings miss the spiritual miracle? What if we're on a regular basis right next to some life-changing truth? What if we even believe some of it? I mean, we've got it, we believe some of it, yet we miss out on the majority of its potential, the majority of what God intended for it to mean in our lives. In other words, what if we're Bible-believing church people, the church crowd, and we still somehow fail to grasp most of what God intended for us, and we miss out on the life that we were intended to live? It's actually more possible than you think. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to read from Luke chapter 4. It's Luke chapter 4. This is early in Jesus' ministry. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Luke chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 14. Now, interestingly, and I'll mention this later, but the way Luke presents his gospel, and again, you've got gospel writers who include various amounts of information from Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of overlapping information. John's information is very independent. He wrote a gospel very different from the others. And so people who put together chronological Bibles take all these gospels and they try to sort out the chronology of Jesus' life. And that's a little bit of what I'm trying to do is go through the chronology of Jesus' life. Now this isn't right away in his ministry, but it looks like it is because Luke puts this right after Jesus' qualifications, right after the, the devil tempts him. It's as if this is the first thing that happens in Jesus' ministry. We know it's not, but it's the way Luke arranged his material and what he included in his gospel. So verse 14, this is early in Jesus' ministry, not quite at the beginning. Jesus returned to Galilee. He had been down in Judea. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding districts. He's already becoming famous. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever you heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three, and six, three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, in other words, to a foreign land, not to his own people, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, in other words, a foreigner. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and they drove him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. 
And he came to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet. Come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another. What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Familiarity, even spiritual familiarity, can diminish faith formation. That's, if you're looking for authorial intent, what's the purpose of this passage? The clearest purpose of this passage is to contrast how Jesus was received in his hometown compared to everywhere else. This is one of the first narratives about rejection of Jesus. This is early in Jesus' ministry. If those who've compiled Jesus' chronology are accurate, and that's not inspired necessarily. We get a chronological Bible. The order they put it in is not something God gave us. So they're trying to put together these various trips of Jesus around the country. It's, it's our effort to put the inspired word of God in the best order. But if they're right, this is very early in Jesus' ministry. He spent a little time in Judea, the religious center, and he's back in Galilee, where he's from. He only has two recorded miracles in Galilee, where he's from, just two. But I assume he's done some miracles south in Judea because Nicodemus seemed to know about some of that when he met with him. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Luke places this as though it's the very beginning of Jesus' formal ministry, even though we know it's not exactly the beginning. But Jesus is famous enough already that there's a buzz wherever he goes. You know, you start performing miracles, you do those kinds of things, people are looking for you. Even in a world without social media, the word gets around. And he begins traveling through Galilee. He's teaching in synagogues. Now, the temple that was only in Jerusalem was the place of sacrifice. The synagogues were sort of the places of teaching and learning. So he goes to the synagogues in all these small towns near where he's from. And then he goes home to Nazareth. That's hometown, home base. That's where he grew up. His friends and family are there. This is his home church. I assume that his carpentry shop was possibly just down the street. You can see the, you know, the sign, God's tables, the master's pieces, I don't know. Can you imagine the warranty Jesus put on furniture? Just think about that. It will never come undone. He went to synagogue, and there was a normal order of service there. He was a reader. So there was a a person who had sort of managed the synagogue uh, service, sort of a uh, a pastor, if you will, something like that would sort of manage the order of service. They were sort of in charge of it. He was a reader, and he read from a passage in Isaiah which referred to the coming of the Jewish Messiah. Now, I don't know if this passage was assigned to Jesus or not, or if the passage that was assigned to him, he ignored and went to the scroll that he wanted them to hear. But he read this passage from Isaiah. Now, keep in mind, and this is something we don't think about as much because we're Christians looking back into a Jewish culture, and sometimes we do it very poorly and very awkwardly. 
But keep in mind that the promise of Messiah, the promise of this future king in the Old Testament, when it was promised, he was to be accompanied by massive social, spiritual, societal, political, maybe even military impact. So when a person in the Old Testament looked forward to Messiah, it wasn't like you and I who are asking Jesus into our heart. All right? We think of Jesus as our way to personal salvation with God. We know of Jesus. He died on the cross for us. We think about personal salvation and what happens to us in the afterlife, which is called, if you're going to seminary, personal eschatology. It's what happens, the era of the last things, personally. That's not what Jews in Jesus' day were looking forward to. They're thinking about Messiah coming and massive social, spiritual, societal impact. It's sort of like heaven is going to be on earth when Messiah comes. That's what they're looking for. And you still see that prophesied in the future when Jesus comes again. But that's what they were looking for the first time. If you're looking at Jesus from an Old Testament standpoint, you never see two comings of Messiah. You can't see it. They expected Jesus to come once to stay and to sort of usher in a new world order, if you will but he was rejected. He left. He's coming back. So in his sermon, he actually mentions the year of the Lord. We would know that as the year of Jubilee. It's talked about in the Old Testament law. Every 50th year, get this, this think about how this would upend the banking system if you're in finance. The year of Jubilee, every 50th year, there is rest for the land. There are no crops. Property is returned to the original owners. So property in Israel was meant to stay in the families that came when they originally took over the promised land. They're meant to maintain it forever. So loans on property were temporary because every 50th year in the year of Jubilee, it was supposed to go back to the original owners. Slaves were all set free. Now think of slavery not the way we've seen it in the last couple of centuries, but more of an indentured servitude where you voluntarily become a slave of somebody so they will take care of you and your family because you're poor. It was that kind of slavery. But in the year of Jubilee, everyone is set free. All debts are canceled. So Jesus' arrival is intended to be like a great inauguration of an era where everything gets a fresh start. It is the great national reset. It's the kingdom of heaven on earth and its king coming with it. Miracles accompanied it. They were intended to accompany it. It was a promised new age, a new era. That's what they look forward to, not a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Way beyond that. And that's what he read about. And then he made this announcement about who he was and is. In verse 21, he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus basically said, You've been waiting for this for four centuries to eight centuries. I'm him. Now, he wasn't saying he was the son of God, incidentally. Because in a Jewish mind from the Old Testament, we look back with our Christian worldview and some of the New Testament, we know that Jesus was always going to be the son of God. There are some prophecies that sort of allude to it. But they weren't expecting that. They expected a human, a great human, a great king, and God's hand would be on him. They didn't realize God in the flesh. Now, we see prophecies that say that. They didn't see it. So get this, after performing miracles and in his hometown 
and in his home church where people know Jesus best, he says he is history's fulfilled promise. He is going to bring in the golden era. It's going to be a new world from now on. There's a great reset going on. And in less than an hour, they had him at the edge of town, people holding both sides of his cloak by a cliff, which Nazareth is sort of built on, overlooking some of the most beautiful historic sites in Bible history, got on a ledge ready to throw him off and kill him. A little bit of change of heart there in a short few minutes. And just before that, Jesus quotes this famous proverb, prophet is not, without, is not welcome in his hometown. And Jesus is pointing out this interesting sort of reality that, you know, familiarity sort of breeds contempt, we might say that. That familiarity erodes and mutes sort of shuts out our belief and our faith in someone or something. When we become very familiar with things, they don't have the impact on us they otherwise would have. It makes something less unique. It makes things less special. And so they start talking about that. Isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, at first they're kind of amazed at it, but there's also a little bit, isn't this just Joseph's son? Isn't this just a carpenter? He's not from the right seminary. We know that the Pharisees expected Messiah to come through the Pharisees' ranks. He doesn't have any of those credentials. In fact, they were the problem to him in many ways. He's not from the right schools. And I tell you, if you look into his background, his birth certificate has an empty space by father. And we're a little too proper to talk about that, but we wonder where Jesus really came from and whether there was a little messing around going on before Joseph and Mary were really together. In fact, the Pharisees later brought that up after one of Jesus' sermons. So this guy, this carpenter, Joseph's son with no credentials, no complete birth certificate, he's lecturing us. And we think, you know, if we'd have been there, we would have taken Jesus seriously. We would have seen through all that stuff. We would have signed on to every word. We would have done whatever he asked. We would have gotten it right we would have taken his every word as from God. Really? Really? Because I've, I've got that right here. Do we? Do we believe he's any less real than the people sitting in that service in that synagogue that morning? Do we believe all of it? Really? Do we believe in a lost world enough that it inconveniences our lives to care for our friends and neighbors who are outside of faith? Do we really believe in inflexible moral absolutes? Do we really believe in heaven? Well, of course we believe in heaven. And hell? Well, you got me there. Does our behavior reflect that? Or has our familiarity with the things of God turned Jesus into something, someone less than he's intended to be? And do each of the six to 10 Bibles in our homes go unopened or unobeyed or unreflected on? He doesn't move us anymore. 
We've been around him so much. It takes a lot to move us. Been in church since before my mom had me. And so are most of you. Kind of takes a lot to get our attention after a while, doesn't it? We develop an immunity to Jesus. That's what Jesus is talking about. His hometown had developed that. Familiarity, even spiritual familiarity, sort of diminished how people normally would have responded to him, their faith formation. Second, unmet expectations also diminish faith formation. I want to back up a bit. You know, they have Jesus on the edge of the cliff. We're going to back up and go a little bit through what Jesus said that really ticked them off because he did. Jesus is able to do some amazing things without sinning. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I give a lot of credit. If I did half the stuff Jesus did, I know you'd be saying it's a sin. Jesus really took some shots at them, and he did it intentionally, and he got the reaction he was looking for. So before Jesus is on the edge of this homicidal cliff, he took a few not-so-nice verbal shots at the people in his home church, which never really works out well. He addressed their lack of faith because he kind of knew their hearts. He knew where they were really coming from. Yeah, they were kind of impressed with some of the things he was saying, and they'd heard about some of the miracles. But he said to them, I know you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. In other words, I know that you expect to challenge me, and I'm going to perform some miracle to really authenticate who I am. And his point is, that's really, you shouldn't have to do that. You shouldn't need a sign, he often said to the Pharisees. You shouldn't need to have me prove over and over and over who I am. So he's sort of addressing what he knew would be their lack of faith. And then he referenced two Old Testament prophets who were actually used to really bless outsiders, Gentiles, foreigners. He said there was a woman in Sidon, and and that's the person one of the prophets went to. There were a lot of widows in Israel during that time of famine, he said. "But, But Elijah went to this woman who's outside of Israel territory, and he did this miraculous thing for her, not for his own people. And he said there was Elisha, and he healed a leper named Naaman, and he did it over in Syria. He didn't do it here in Israel. His point is, I'm the Messiah, And like it or not, my ministry is going to be to outsiders who are more open to the things of God than the people who become familiar with me for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years. And he said, basically, by giving these illustrations, people like you are never going to see me for who I really am. There's too much in the way. And he said, it's always been that way. The prophets face the same thing. People too familiar with God, so they went to the outsiders who were hungry for the truth. Here's the point. The anger in the room erupted when Jesus made it clear that he wasn't going to be what they expected. The homicidal cliff threat took place when God in the flesh blew up their sort of cozy, self-centered expectations that Jesus was there to give them everything they want. And when he did that, they didn't respond with this during the service as he's giving them these illustrations from the Old Testament. They didn't respond with, well, okay, you're the Messiah. I guess we need to adjust our understanding of Messiah. I mean, I'm a little disappointed, but I'm going to adjust my view of God. And I'm going to accept God at all costs because he's God. The priority of truth is most important no matter where it leads to Jesus. So I guess you're just a little different than we expected, but you're God, you're the Messiah, so I accept it. They didn't do that. When God wasn't what they expected, when Messiah wasn't what they expected, they rejected 
it all, and they were ready to kill him. My point is this. People, and by people I mean you and me, all of us, people are bad at loyalty to God when he doesn't meet our expectations. We don't do well at readjusting. We walk away. You know, there's been studies done of atheists and how you assume that atheists become atheists because they're, you know, they have a science mind and sort of they're in the realm of science and we're just in the realm of faith, not real truth or science, which isn't true at all. But the reality is there's that perception of atheists. But when they study atheists and interview them, you will usually find trauma in life, broken relationships with dad in particular, the kinds of things that rock people that have caused them to reject God. It's not necessarily the science. I've read one of these studies to you before. It's fascinating. There are other reasons people are atheists. Because God hasn't met their expectations, they reject the idea of God. In his book, This Is Our Time, Trevin Wax relates the following story. In his provocative book, Modern Romance, the actor and comedian Aziz Ansari describes watching his friend Derek search for a date on OkCupid. This is not an endorsement of OkCupid. An app designed to help people find that perfect mate. Derek got, an OP, got on OkCupid and, and let us watch as he went through his options. There were women whom OkCupid had selected as potential matches for him based on his profile and the site's algorithm. The first woman he clicked on was beautiful with a witty profile page, good job, and lots of shared interests, including a love of sports. After looking the page over for a minute or so, Derek said, well, she looks okay. I'm just going to keep looking for a while. And I asked what was wrong, and he said, she likes the Red Sox. Well, I suppose if you're a Toronto fan, that might be enough. I was completely shocked. I couldn't believe how quickly he had moved on. Imagine the Derek of 20 years ago finding out that this beautiful, charming woman was a real possibility for him. The Derek of 1993 would have walked up and said, wait, you like the Red Sox? Whatever. But Derek of 2013 simply clicked an X on a web browser and deleted her without thinking twice. Christian authors Tim and Kathy Keller point out what's wrong with this unsatisfying search for the perfect soulmate. And he said, we're looking for someone who accepts us as we are and fulfills our desires, and this creates an unrealistic set of expectations that frustrates both the searchers and the searched for. The Bible's view of marriage involves two flawed people coming together to create a, a place of stability and love and consolation. But a marriage based not on self-denial but on self-fulfillment will require a low or no maintenance partner who meets your needs while making almost no claims on you. Simply put, people are asking far too much in the marriage partner. And I know what you're thinking. It's like, how did we go from Jesus to okay Cupid? What does that have to do with Jesus? Everything. And I'll tell you why. Because we've absolutely romanticized our connection to Jesus in the 21st century and the 20th century. What do we tell people about Jesus? Do you want to have a relationship with Jesus? He's never going to leave you. He loves you. He's never going to let you down. We sing songs like this. The gospel, the true gospel says we are sinners. And we don't like that part. We're bad at times. Separated from a holy God. 
Therefore, we need a Savior. We cannot undo our condition. Jesus died on the cross. God came in the flesh, satisfying the wrath of a holy God as he gave his own life to rescue us, to pay the atonement, the penalty for our sins. And by trusting in Jesus, we're forgiven and we're given eternal life. We now do have a relationship. We are related to God through his son. Jesus is my Lord. And Jesus said, there's a very good chance I'm gonna die for him a martyr's death. That's the gospel. Not very appealing the way you put it, Paul. Here's our gospel today. God has great plans for you. Get on the God train, because he's on your train. He wants a relationship with you. And by adding Jesus to your life, you're going to get the best life possible. Embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord. We are sinners. And begin this wonderful journey. He'll always be there. Now both are actually true. Even the second one has elements of truth to it. If God is for us, what can be against us? We sang about it this morning a little bit. Both are true, but the emphasis is very different. So both are true-ish. Yes, Jesus is the way to peace with God. The first way I described the gospel. He is the way to peace with God. And I didn't talk about many life expectations in there from Jesus. The second rendition of the gospel is a little bit of a Jesus is your friend. He's always going to be with you. He's never going to let you down. Here's the problem. One gospel makes few promises. There are few expectations. The other gospel puts a lot of pressure on Jesus to give you a great life. We've romanticized our relationship with God. And I want to say this very carefully because some of you are going to hear this and you're going to cringe and you're going to think that God is going to strike me dead on the spot. I don't think he will, but I haven't said it yet. If Jesus is my best friend, I've had better friends. I've had better friends. I've had friends who haven't let me down nearly as much as God has. He doesn't always answer me. Good friends answer me. He lets bad stuff happen. My good friends don't let bad stuff happen to me. He's always there, but I can't see him. Doesn't always feel like it. Feel pretty abandoned at times. I'm not in it for a friend. Even though Abraham was the friend of God, and that's idea, I get it. I'm in it because it's true. I'm in it because of the four major world religions. I believe this one got it right and God has reflected himself in the truths of scripture. I'm in it because of what the disciples said when they really didn't like one of Jesus' sermons and Jesus said to them, are you gonna leave too? Because the rest of the crowd left. You know what they said? Where are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, we don't like you right now either, Jesus. But you're God. We don't have any better choices. Your truth. And so we're suffering in Christianity from this issue generationally because it's one of the main reasons so many young people are walking away from faith. They have been given a gospel of Jesus is your buddy. He's not going to let you down. Your life will be better. And then when crisis hits their lives, the foundation for their faith was not this is the truth as opposed to falsehood, but Jesus is a great gig for you. And then when he ceases to be a great gig, your life is shattered. Unmet expectations. They diminish faith formation. 
Scores of people leave the faith every day because of this. Third, it's open hearts that experience the fullness of Jesus. This is just going to take a moment here. I believe this is intended to be a contrast. The rest of the passage, some of which I read for you, starts showing how other people, once he gets out of Nazareth, are responding to Jesus. What's interesting is, and I, 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 I'm assuming this is what Luke is intending to show, all right, the hometown can't get it right, but the demons do. Isn't that kind of funny? You know, hometowners, they can't even accept him as Messiah. They got him on the edge of the cliff, and they're going to chuck him off and kill him. He goes to the next town. The demons are saying, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. Luke puts those side by side, and that is not without purpose, editorially. Demons know who he is. They start saying it. In fact, they go further. They don't just say you're the Messiah. They say you're the son of God. We know you from prior experience. We know you from outside of this world. We know you from banishing us to the earth. And Jesus tells them, hey, you guys shut up, okay? I'm sorry. You guys be quiet. You guys be quiet. We can't have you saying that yet. I'm not trying to start that kind of a movement where people accept that I'm a son of God yet. That's going to be a couple years from now. Every other locale heard a good report. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. People came to Jesus with every malady, it says. In verse 49... Verse 49, where is verse 49? There is no verse 49. Verse 42. When Jesus came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place and the crowds were searching for him. This is just after this section. The crowds were searching for him. He came to them and he tried, uh, they tried to keep him from going away from them. Everywhere Jesus went, they, they didn't want to give him a private moment. That's the summary of that section summary of the section before, they got up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So you've got this contrast between these two groups of people. Away from home, hearts were open, and they got from Jesus things that his hometown crowd could never get because they had open hearts to God. I want to wrap up with three quick apps. First, what percentage of God's word have I chosen to explain away or ignore? We don't have the erasable Bible. I get in a lot of conversations with people that really don't accept what God said the first time. There's always a little bit of a different take on it. He didn't really mean that. I mean, if he wrote it today, he wouldn't say that. Sure about that? Maybe we need to adjust our lives to what God says rather than the other way around. There's a news story from Denmark. Oh, those Danish. I'm half Danish. I can say that. News story from Denmark about a Lutheran congregation seeking a new pastor. But the church has one non-negotiable but apparently controversial requirement. The prospective pastor must believe in God. In po- yeah, I was going to say don't laugh. But I'm not trying to make you feel bad, Aaron. But don't laugh. It's true. Parts of post-Christian Europe, pastors don't always have to believe in God to minister in a church. For instance, one pastor complained, personally, I prefer a good agnostic theologian rather than a fundamentalist who believes the Bible can fit all human aspects of life. A minister's council issued a protest against the congregation for wanting a theist, a person who believes in God, saying, who can decide if a person has the right beliefs? 
The reporter comments, in Denmark, what few church-going Lutheran Christians there are left are reduced to having to ask that the church send them a pastor who actually believes in God, and that is controversial in Denmark. Now, I hope that's an outlier, but I, there, there are seminaries all over the world that explain away the life that is in this book, say it's just a product of man, it's nothing to do with the supernatural. But what about us? What is fairly clear in the Bible by its basic teaching and a normal interpretive process that is not acceptable to you? That's a problem. Second, what gospel am I operating under? Am I set up for disappointment? This expectations issue. If the gospel you believed had an emphasis on all that Jesus was going to do for you in the future, watch out. If you haven't faced disappointment with God, you just haven't lived long enough. And when it happens, your expectations will have everything to do with how you weather it. You know, if you go into the Christian life expecting to die a martyr's death and you live to a ripe old age, you're probably not going to be that bothered by things. But if you go into the Christian life expecting Jesus to be a divine vending machine every time you get into trouble, you're not going to last long as a Christian. What gospel did you believe? And are you willing to adjust it now and say, you know what? You know what? <laughs> that Sunday school teacher might have sold me a bill of goods, but I understand it now. Jesus is just not a lifelong party. I mean, according to the New Testament, he was at some pretty good parties, but he's not a lifelong party. There's going to be disappointment, and that's okay. I'm in it because he's God in the flesh. And no matter what happens, I will follow him. As Job said, though he slay me, I will follow him. That's what God wants. And finally, what is possible with Jesus that I, what is possible with Jesus that I'm not even contemplating yet? In other words, he was with a bunch of church people who were ready to kill him. What did they give up? What life did they give up with God? We're a bunch of church people who I'm sure put a lot of God's promises and you know, issues on the side and just think, yeah, maybe that happened to some other Christians, but I don't expect much from my Christian life. Happy if I get a ticket to heaven. That's really all I'm looking for here. A little peace in my heart ability to put my head on the pillow at night and sleep okay without wondering about that stuff. The radio program, This American Life, tells the story about the late writer David Rakoff, who had a hard time believing what was right in front of his eyes. In fact, in 1986, Rakoff's company in Tokyo, Tokyo was working on a computer program that would allow expats like himself to write short little messages to one another after logging on to a network. He was not impressed. He thought, what kind of loser would log on to a computer just to talk to somebody? In a moment of decisiveness, he went into work and quit. Sayonara, suckers. Good luck with your network. Of course, we can all guess what that network became. It was the beginning of a little thing called the Internet that he walked away from professionally. He did other dumb things, too. David has other stories. Early in the 1980s, he went to a dance club, heard a young blonde singer from Michigan, and thought, boy, she is lousy. That singer was later known by the name Madonna. Again, working in publishing, he was handed a manuscript and passed it off as subliterate drivel and gave it an easy pass. 
That turned out to be the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, went on to sell about 15 million copies at the point this article was written. Apparently seeing, what we think we're seeing, isn't always believing, even when it's right in front of your eyes. What's in front of our eyes? What's in front of our eyes in the scriptures that we just pass on? Because we don't think it's really possible for us. What does God want to do with you and through you and in you? And it's possible that you know Jesus and still walk away from most of the great things that he wants to do because he's just too familiar to you. We just don't take him seriously like we should. God, we thank you for your word. And uh, I love this passage. I love the way Luke put this together. I think Luke is the only one who mentions this passage this way. It's such, a, it's such an insightful way of looking at our hearts, the, the, the darkness of our hearts, and how much we, we think we're objective, but we're really not. How biased we are, and even at times maybe biased against believing the simple words of the Son of God who we follow. Help us to have the kind of honesty with you and honesty with ourselves to know where we need to change, how we need to take you more seriously, how we can be better people, better followers of Jesus. Help us to have the right kind of expectations of who you are, what you've really promised us and what you really haven't promised us so that as we try to live our lives and influence others around us, we don't face great disappointment with you over things that we never committed to anyway. We've just sometimes gotten the gospel wrong. Help us to see you for who you are and to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.